happy Halloween and welcome to Crime Line's Halloween episode. I hope you liked the giant two-parter collaborative episodes that I released last week. Special thanks to Foul Play Podcast for putting that together and creating such a beautiful narrative throughout introducing the podcasts and segueing to the next. Shane did an incredible job, and I really want to thank him for that. If you didn't listen yet and want to get in the Halloween spirit, I recommend going back and listening. This week, though, I have another special. In this one, you will first hear me talking to Brandon from Southern Gothic about how to write a ghost story. He gives me the insights I need to set off to write my own historical Kansas City-based ghost story for my listeners. I would wager most of you don't know that before Crime Lines and even before my old podcast Insight, my very first podcast, which is not available anywhere, was called Unblocked, and I interviewed writers about their writing process and how they put things together. I know most of you don't know about it because I see analytics and I got about 90 listeners on a good week. It was really interesting to hear about people's process, but it became rather repetitive, not because of my guests, but because of my limited ability to interview people. I was very new at it. As you know, I have a lot more experience doing it now. And as a consequence of that, I get much more interesting answers. So with sitting down with Brandon, it was kind of fun to go back to my first podcast ever topic that I started in 2015. But with the skills I have gained in the last seven years of podcasting. It's a great interview on how and why we tell stories. And you'll even hear me pitch him my ideas for the ghost story I was going to tell. Then after the interview, you will get to hear that ghost story, which is, to be fair, more history than ghost, because at the end of the day, I am what I am, and those were the parts of the story I was drawn to, and any writer will tell you, you have to write what you know, you have to write what you're passionate about. So that is what I did, and I hope you like it, and I hope everyone has an amazing Halloween. And think of me as I am out, rain or shine, power trick-or-treating with two very excited little boys. Without further ado, here's my interview with Brandon of the podcast Southern Gothic. I am uh, Brandon Schecksneider. I have the show Southern Gothic. It's a show that we tell ghost stories. We like to talk about all kinds of haunted things, old folklore, a little bit of haunted history. It's like going on a ghost tour, but, you know, in a podcast, right? this crossover like what should i call it like midwest gothic <laughs> like, <laughs> like a dilapidated farmhouse on like 800 flat acres Is i mean a haunted cornfield a, a haunted cornfield i think that's what we're going for here absolutely it'll be fun <laughs> so when you're picking a story for your show what elements are you looking for that makes it a good story i look for the humanity in it as the simplest, most base level, who are the people? Do we know enough about them so we can really experience what their life was like? Because tragedy to just random strangers or something isn't, you know, there's 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 no I, I hate to say pizzazz. This sounds that sounds awful, right? So you're telling a ghost story, and the reality is the ghost story, if 
if something bad happens to somebody that you don't really know or you can't relate to, then, well, you know, uh, how are you really going to get into it? So a lot of times when I pick stories, I really want to have a full idea of what folks' life were like with the context of that time period. So we can really experience what that is and kind of put ourselves in that situation. And that, that's the best way to scare somebody, right? My show is just the facts. I don't embellish anything. The closest I get to embellishing is saying like, wow, that must have been really hard. Like I don't have sure. that in my show. So when you are telling a ghost story and it's a historical story, how much room for creative embellishment would I have in writing my own ghost story? Let's look at it from a perspective. I'll, I'll even give you a story as an example, right? So we kind of have two different pieces here when we talk about when we talk about ghost stories and all. You might have like a haunted place, right? So we'll have a place that everybody goes to and they see apparitions or they, you know, hear sounds at night. They hear things bumping or things flying off the wall, right? And there's no real story around. You might have, well, you know, somebody died here back in 1882. And there's that's kind of what it was, right? And there's kind of a fact-based history of the things that happened here. And of course, they like to stay here. And then you have a ghost story where we'd actually introduce a character who went through something, whether it's a, a true ghost story or not, uh, they would go through something that would cause this kind of tragedy to occur and why they would linger on after the fact. And so these are two different kinds of stories. And you can talk about a haunted place or you can talk about this ghost story. Now, um, in talking about facts, so I'll just bring into example here. So I, I do ghost tours in Franklin, Tennessee. And this is a, it's a, it's a small town that uh, a large civil war battle happened here. Okay. One of the very end. So there was 10,000 men died, went missing or wound or were wounded within the period of five hours. So massive casualties here, but there's this one house that we have uh, that's on the tour. That's kind of a, a well-known spot. And it was built in 1821 and, and it's an art gallery. And folks say that the man who built it there, his daughter had hung herself in the building uh, the night before her wedding. Okay. And so we can tell this story where we can talk about this building here. Well, we see the apparition of a young woman, you know, hanging from this stairwell. This is what happened here. And we can say it as simple as that, tell you the facts, tell you the date, tell you all this. Or what I can do is I can go find out about these people's lives. And now I can really, really put to where, what did this young woman look like? What was, what was her life like? What was this? You know, so I can, I can either say Edward Clouston built Clouston Hall in 1821 and then the following year, his daughter committed suicide here. And now she continues to haunt the place as simply as that. Or I can tell you, Edward built the house in 1821. And he was in a very big rush for this house to be built because his daughter was about to get married. And he had the whole house done up. All the family was in town. The church was done up and all of these things. And I can tell you that, you know, she was a blonde haired blue eyed young woman of the age of 17 at the time. And and everyone was excited about this big wedding. The town was all ready to go. And the night before the wedding, all the families in town and they're all at sleep. And in the middle of the night, they wake up and there's an awful sound and they walk out. And what do they find? They see that their daughter had hung herself in her long blue nightgown. And she didn't leave a suicide note or anything, but everybody knew exactly why. She was 17 and the groom was 48. Okay. So now... We have those facts in there, but we went back in and I was able to look up, you can look up census records and find out her age, right? So if you go find a haunted place, how do we find out information about these people, right? We can go do research. We have Ancestry.com. We can do like, we can do killer here. We're really going down into the roots, right? I can tell you a little bit about their life. If I wanted to embellish even more, I could talk about how Edward, he emigrated here from Scotland 
and he got married in 1820, I believe. And, and he was a drugstore owner in this small town of Franklin. And, and I could really go deep into building this, this, this cool little caricature of this family that was likely thriving in the early Southern culture there and then have this awful tragedy happen. And so when that tragedy happens and I tell you about the daughter committing them walking out and committing suicide, it will elicit a far more emotional response than if I tell you that at this house, the daughter of the man who built it committed suicide here. And I think that's ultimately how I approach things is I want to really bring out that humanity, like I said earlier, and really find that person that's underneath the story. And, and that's what scares us. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you kind of have compared your podcast to a bit of a ghost tour. I know that if you're covering something in your area, you could go out to the site. How often do you travel to the sure. places you discuss? I plan on doing a Kansas City ghost story so I can you know, very easily go to any of the locations. I wish it was more often. Unfortunately, it's not. You know, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, so I frequently drive from Nashville down to New Orleans and back to go visit family and, and my sister's down there. And she's the main researcher for the podcast. She's the smart one. She's got the master's in library science. She's an archivist, works at the Louisiana State Museum. So I, I, here I am talking about census records as hippie, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's give the, the real credit where it's due here. The brains of the operation is not here. So I, I do this little stretch all the time. So pretty much anything that's in this Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee area, I usually can hit up. Um, sometimes it's before, sometimes it's after. If you are able to visit though, and you're really able to do a little bit of research ahead of time and you go to these places, it just, it adds such an element to where you're really going to be able to feel it, right? You can go there and, and, and I'm not sure if, you know, in the true crime genre, I'm sure it's, it's got its own kind of feel to it as well. But when you, when you go somewhere and you stand somewhere where something happened, I, it just, to me, you still feel the energy there. And I don't even mean that in a paranormal sense. I'm not coming on as the ghost guy and saying that there's, I mean, to know that like you're in this place and you can just really uh, investigators, right. Even have to feel that. Right. So, so it can only help you. I mean, we'll, we'll just say that out of the gate. It can only help you kind of, uh, you know, put your, put yourself in those shoes to scare people. I know that I've talked about it with my listeners before, but I traveled with Josh Hallmark to a site of an arson that Israel Keys had committed and a um, bank robbery. They were kind of nearby each other. And standing where that arson was, was a very kind of creepy feeling to where like we're, we're in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and a donkey brayed and I jumped a mile because I was just so <laughs> in this moment. But if you just told me, oh yeah, there used to be a house here and it burned down. I wouldn't have felt it because I didn't, you know, understand the story and the significance of it. I'm going to actually give you three pitches so that we can kind of talk through three ideas I had. And one of them is somewhere I've toured with my kids because it's a historic house, but I toured it before I knew any ghost stories about okay. it. Uh -huh. And I did a kid-friendly educational school tour, you know, not not necessarily the ghost tours, though they do do candlelight tours. And right now they are doing ghost tours. So I can even go do a ghost tour of the house, but uh, we'll get into it in a minute. <laughs> sure. I do want to talk about the structure of a ghost story because Crime Lines has a, a formula. Crime Lines is the word crime and timeline put together. 
I tell the whole thing from the beginning where I give the backstory of the people involved leading up to the crime, then the crime happens, and the aftermath. I've actually had an episode where no crime occurred for like an hour. That's how much backstory I tend to do if I have it available to me. I can write other ways where we start with the the crime and then we follow the investigation to the solution. I've done that for other shows that prefer that format. This is just the formula for Crime Lines. So I have the ability to be adaptable, but I am wondering, do you have a formula for your stories or how do you look at the whole of all this information and find your starting point? I think the difference between our two shows as well is that I'm a little more entrenched in the entertainment side. I don't have to worry quite as much about, you know, everything's historic. Everything's historic true crime, you know, in in, in that sense of, of paranormal versus, you know, active cases or recent things that, that you very much want to uh, do justice with, right? So I, I can kind of live more on this uh, hair more sensational. Now, because of that, I would, I kind of stick to the old music phrase, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of, if I'm going to tell a ghost story, then I'm going to follow the formula of, I'm going to try and establish the world in a way of this kind of microcosm of what it is that we're here, right? To just stick to the Clouston bride. Maybe I'll discuss about what that family life was like a little bit and give you just enough to really try and pull you in and either make you feel like you're a part of the family or make you like them. And just enough of that and then move forward through it and you're going to set everything up. So it's kind of like love, loss, tragedy. Just right through that gate. And it's the Joseph Campbell monomyth gone bad. All right, we're not gonna, we're not actually gonna get through the belly of the beast. We're gonna stop there. And then our ghost is gonna be like, oh, sad this never continued. So when you get to the actual haunting spot, when you get to that ghost part, you've already had your tragedy. And now you you're you're looking for something. What is the reason for that ghost to be there? If it's a great story, what is the reason for that ghost to continue on after that tragedy? And that's kind of another element. Is this is this ghost there because it's continuing on as a, a conscious thing trying to search for, you know, a dead loved one? You know, there's a lot of a lot of ghost bride stories where they're, you know, a husband or something or, you know, or a mother. The classic lady in white story, the lady walking on the side of the road and, you know, driver picks up the lady. She wants to go home and, you know, he looks back and realizes the woman has disappeared. Right. And she's she's searching for something. So so there is the second element of that kind of crossing over where you might want to add something or really look at what the purpose of the spirit staying around is. That's always interesting. Now, if you do a haunted house story, though, that like I was saying earlier, that's a little different because um, it it can be very timeline like like you're saying, you know, it very much can be house was built here. This person, you know, then this happened. They got yellow fever here. Then this happened here. And a lot of those haunted house places are, are almost more a lot of a handful of tragedies happen there that were fairly benign, regular ones that would have happened during a time period, right? You know, if it was built in 1800, there's a good chance that, you know, built in 1800 in Louisiana, then uh, at some point, yellow fever would have struck, right? And you you would have lost, and just by just way of how the world worked in this kind of frontier. With those, what's hard to get to with the course is you, you have to set up expectations at certain points. You know, you kind of have to, to lean into that. Something's going to happen here at some point. So you're more building tension in those stories as opposed to building a point where it falls apart. 
so that timeline story is kind of this general building up and when's it going to end? When's it going to explode? As opposed to the Clouston story is more like everything's beautiful and boom, tragedy happens. So those are, those are two typical ways that I approach it. I still, to this day, after doing this, I still struggle with some of the timeline ones to, to really feel like I can make them entertainment enough. So they're, they're more difficult. I warn you, you know, but obviously you're doing that as well with what you're working on now. And it, it seems to be working, Charlie. So yeah. <laughs> it, it works when you're trying to just kind of break down the facts and trying to work in storytelling there without embellishment. So there is a little bit of um, trying to remain conversational is sure. the main thing I do with crime lines to keep it interesting while also giving facts and, and issues that we need to be thinking about. But conversational ghost story narration, which we haven't even talked about narration style yet. Mm-hmm. My narration style is conversational, but if I did a conversational ghost story, I don't know that it would be spooky. I've listened to paranormal shows where they have people call in and tell stories or they're just telling the story in that having coffee with your friends across the kitchen table way, and they don't feel spooky at all. They just feel like interesting stories. Right. Or sometimes they're not interesting. And I'm like, you know, sure. you could have cut this. But um, that's a story. <laughs> that, that's an editorial decision. But I, I, I'm so, pretentious about them too, Charlie. Don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are narrating a story, how do you handle that where you're not sounding like you're reading off a paper, but you also keep it like an audiobook? Well, it's definitely written to be read. I absolutely will read it out loud several times during the final draft process. Um, so the structure of my particular podcast is I essentially, I typically like to start with the story as is seen local lore in general. So what is the common accepted myth here? What is it if you were to go take a ghost tour in New Orleans in the French Quarter and they, what would they tell you when you were there in front of this haunted place, right? And then if you were, and then after that, what I typically do is we then step back away from it and we talk about the history behind it that doesn't relate to the story. So it's like I have a chunk that I'll do where it's telling the story as it's told and then I'll go back through and we'll talk about what is that French Quarter residence and how did the story develop out of it and what really happened. So that's that's how I structure the podcast. Now, for the story itself though, as I'm writing that since those are kind of two different things where, you know, that second half does probably resemble more of what you're doing with timeline wise, uh, you know, more of an analysis type phase. I don't have to worry as much about delivery there, but it's all about pacing. And somebody just sent me this fantastic TED talk recently where, and I wish I could remember the name, but the guy just said all of these just absolute gibberish words. And he did it in a way where he was like building tension. And then all of a sudden you're just talking like this. And he said, and then I think, and he's just using all these gibberish words. And it sounded so important. And this was his <laughs> TED talk was proving that, you know, this rise, this dynamic delivery of, of the pacing of how it slowed down so people would lean in. And so as you write, this is essentially what you're trying to put into place is you're trying to say as you're building tension and you can slow it down and do that. And I personally felt like the master's class for me in learning pacing was when I actually go out live and when I actually do a, a real life ghost tour because I can see the instant reaction. And until I was able to do that, 
that that massively changed how I told stories on the podcast because you know we're so used to just sitting in front of a microphone and we don't get that instant feedback and and it's almost jarring even knowing how many people are listening to us and we don't even get feedback and there's you know like how how crazy is that whereas you know I'll go stand in front of 10 people tonight in downtown Franklin and feel like I have to be you know really on and really interact and um so that's how I would look at it is I look at it as it's kind of a timing it is a voice dynamics, you know, and kind of loudness and where you're going up and down. It's all playing with your voice. I think it's, it's a game. It's absolutely a game. And think about an old papa and how he would have told you a story. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you scare the kids? Right. You know, maybe it's not something I'm going to get with my first try, but maybe I do need to, to tell it like to my kids, you know, I have I have older kids. Like I'm not going to yeah. tell it to my five-year-old, but I do have older kids. <laughs> Maybe I can tell them and they can give me feedback because they will certainly tell me if I'm being um, compelling or boring. They will totally. absolutely tell me. Picture yourself like you're sitting around a campfire as yeah. you're reading that, as you're kind of reading that out loud, picture yourself, you're out, you know, really sitting in front of a campfire and it's dark out and you want that mood. And think of that mood of there's nothing else out there right now except for what I'm saying. So how do I do the rise and fall? And, mm -hmm. and I'm the, the sole focus of that. You're not delivering information. You've already written your information down, right? You've already put all the information together. So it's not a static delivering of this now. Now it's how do I make this information come alive? So, okay, I want to give you my pitches and then you can help me narrow it down. So I have it down to an old house, a hotel or a church are the three settings. Okay. So when you're thinking about setting, what what should I be looking for? Honestly, the setting doesn't even matter quite as much. It's almost more about the people that are in the setting. So okay. the the backdrop of it now... You can look at it, let's say, especially with a church and a hotel or something, the story might kind of lean towards uh, flirting with some kind of thing that is really culturally uh, maybe difficult or taboo about one of those places, you know? So maybe, maybe when it comes to a church, something that really, if it's a story that messes with that feeling of being in church and feeling safe or something of that nature mm -hmm. might be, um, or maybe messes with kind of the purity of that spot, right? A hotel might be you really, if it's a ghost story that messes with that inherent feeling inside of you when you're there, where you know that like, you know, you're here for a night, but there's no telling what else has been here. So you don't have the safety at a hotel and you know it, and it's all a facade how pretty this, this hotel room is because no telling what happened the night before in there. Um, houses, I think, can be the most interesting and scary if it's the right story, because right now, especially culturally, there's such that, that home ownership feeling. And if you can mess with the fact that like, yes, you own this house and you've lived here for 10, 20 years, but you've lived here the least amount of time of anyone. This isn't really your house. I'll give you the house first. So okay. the house that is, it's called the John Warnell house. That's who built it. It's pretty close to where I live. It's, you know, it's in Kansas City in the Brookside neighborhood. It is like the the main road that runs in front of it is named Warnell after him. The main 
issue that I would have with this is that the specifics of the ghostly tales are very vague and thin because they're all kind of based in the Civil War because the house was used as a hospital during the Battle of Westport, and it did treat soldiers on both sides. So the, the ghost story part here is that it is just vaguely haunted by Civil War soldiers. You know, people see what looks like a wounded soldier walking by. And I mean, there are a few stories that can be teased out, but there's no real solid backstory of of any of the specific people that mm -hmm. they say is haunting it. And the interesting thing here is actually probably more the history of Missouri within the Civil War and within that context, because <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I mean, Missouri is just, the history of Missouri by itself is a lot of ridiculousness. So the state actually wanted to stay neutral and not yeah. take a side, which yeah. I don't know how you don't take a side. They just wanted to see what happened, I guess. But then the governor became pro-Confederacy. And so uh -huh. he had Missouri admitted into the Confederacy as the 12th state. Uh -huh. But the Confederates never had control of the state. And he ended up in exile as the exiled governor living in Texas, still sending representatives to the Confederacy from Missouri. So the fact that this house was then used for both sides during a battle really kind of makes sense in the context. And so, like, my history side is like, oh, I want to get into this. But then I just feel like it's a five-minute unsolved mystery segment of, you know, Civil War sure. people with head wrappings walking through. Right. Do you cover stories that are more history heavy than spooky heavy? Oh, totally. Absolutely. So I will do that. And that that would kind of fall in that haunted house vein of, you know, we would talk about the history. We'd talk about the context. Missouri was in a really interesting place that a lot of people don't understand for sure. Because, I mean, that was that was a battleground state in its own way politically. So I enjoy that part. I will usually include some of that. Um, when you get to something now, uh, without knowing more about the history, if other things happen there or or anything, uh, when you get to the points where you do have a somewhat more generic thing, right? Like I have right here in Franklin, we have 44 field hospitals following the battle. So, so many people, we basically say like any building that still had a roof and was big enough, they took bodies too. Now, some of those are really boring. I mean, now today, now they are, right? Okay. Some of those, there's no real story. So as, as you're discussing here, so, you know, we knew it was a field hospital. Don't know any of the men that were there. Maybe if you were to able to tease out of who was living there at the time, and you never know, there might be a daughter there who worked as a nurse at this field hospital that left a journal. Maybe something like that would really help build the, the character around the story. If that's the case, it really is a good one there because you can really color what that tragedy looked like. Now, if it is a place like this, it's been around that long, usually there'll be several points. So it's like if I have, let's say there's two or three mediocre traumas there, right? I mean, it sounds so awful, mediocre traumas. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, the paranormal world isn't quite into the mental health stage of discussing trauma. But, um, the uh, you know, there's there's three certain points across, you know, then then I can deal with that because it almost seems connected together and, and we can talk that way. Uh, when you're talking about a field hospital, though, as I'm saying, you can always go into what that really means because a lot of people don't understand what a field hospital is and how dark that actually is and how, you know, these hospitals, how these weren't the way we see them and really the tragedy and just how a man who would have gone in that field hospital was very likely to just go ahead and lose a limb. 
and really go into what that emotional scarring of the location is. Um, you can play up that and really get that in the life section of the tale as opposed to the paranormal haunting and just kind of end it. Now, I know I'm sure there's a place here in Franklin. It's a music store and it was a field hospital. And of course, there's the similar thing. There's apparitions. And so I, I like to lean into dad jokes sometimes. I'll admit that. And I talk about how, you know, kids, you know, music lessons are hard enough now. But, you know, when you start seeing folks walking around without arms and legs in there, you really don't want to practice the piano, <laughs> you know, so you can always mm -hmm. throw things like that and, you know, kind of play up that side because there usually isn't if it's just an mm -hmm. apparitions of people. But um, but play up where the trauma is, where that tragedy is and make it very human and make mm -hmm. it very much in a way that that you are doing with true crime as well really understanding what the impact of the actual you know that that traumatic point is and and the rest kind of takes care of itself in terms of that yeah okay so the hotel this one is actually it's a hotel i recently stayed in i didn't know it was haunted or supposedly haunted at the time so the generation y live show that i did it was just north of downtown kc and I live on the south side of town. So I went ahead and got a hotel room for the night downtown so that I could just not have to, sure. fr frankly, so I'd have to get up and get the kids to school the next day. Lars handled that for <laughs> Poor me. Poor Lars, yeah. <laughs> Such a good guy. It was his idea even. <laughs> oh, he's a wonderful man. I yeah. love hanging out with him. <laughs> yeah, he's great. So I, so I stayed down there. The hotel is now called 21C or something. But before whoever took it over... It used to be called the Savoy. That's what the restaurant's still called. That's probably what it's always going to be known as locally. You know how you get a mm -hmm. building or something, they sure. rename it, but nobody goes with the new name. So it's the called the Savoy, which I think is just such a great name for a, go a place for a ghost story anyway, because it sounds so classic. So the building does have a lot of history to it. There's no, as far as I could find on my cursory research, any tragic backstory. But the thing is, that the ghostly happenings that have been reported are actually relatively recent and they're specific because in the late 80s, early 90s, it was actually being run as a residential building before it was converted back to a hotel. Mm -hmm. So this one would be kind of late on the history and the backstory, but people's engagement with the ghosts, with specific stories like the name of the person is Larry and he lived, you know, which room he lived in and what happened specifically like interior sliding doors opening in the middle of the night. So uh -huh. that one seemed to have some strengths just because there were such, there were such specific stories linked uh -huh. to it. Again, it's really hard if all I have is just, you know, plates going flying or something that's a dime a dozen in the paranormal world. Right. So this stuff, so without the backstory, it's difficult, but what you have is if it is something so recent and you can actually put names to the people that are ex that are experiencing it rather than needing to create the cause of the ghosts you know you can really put your listeners in the place of you are the one experiencing this and this is what it is so if you know let's just say there's john is the one that experiences a man named john right like well you know john came here on his honeymoon and you can really tell the story of a man who's experienced this awful thing and then kind of embellish out from there and and put. So it, it's all about trying to put your your listener in the place in the shoes of someone who's experiencing something that's uncomfortable. Make them feel uncomfortable. And, and the best way to do it is to bring that humanity, like I said back. So if you can put the humanity in there, 
amidst the apparitions and everything else, then then it's going to go over fairly well. From the paranormal perspective, I always talk about, you know, I can kind of, I can, I can go back and forth between whether we're talking about folklore and telling stories that's all local legends versus an actual ghost hunter or, or an investigator, right? And that's one of those scenarios here where, or anywhere for that matter, if I have a haunted house and I tell you a ghost story about it, that might not actually be why it's haunted. You know, just because, you know, John Doe died at this property, maybe John Doe died here because, you know, he was murdered in this room and, and today it's haunted because of this and that. Well, this building's 200 years old. There would have been a lot of trauma there beyond that, that we would never know about. We would never be aware of. So on the paranormal front, you can see that angle of as an experiencer of the paranormal rather than the historic ghost story. So you can play with it that way. Okay, so now the last pitch is the church story. And this one is pretty well documented, the history, because it was there was a public scandal connected to it. Oh, gosh. Now I'm already interested, Charlie. Yeah. yeah. So it's just centered around a controversial minister. Okay. And it's in Episcopal Church, but he came and when he took over, he renamed the church and he moved it more towards Catholicism in practice with rituals and altars and things like that. And so he was controversial. He is also incredibly influential because he helped found the hospital that eventually became one of the largest hospital systems here in the city. So if I say St. Luke's, everyone knows I mean a hospital, not a church. Mm -hmm. And while alive, he actually sued the local newspaper at the time it was the Kansas City Times for libel for what it printed about him. So like I said, this was a pretty public thing. A lot of the newspaper is either uploaded in articles about it or I searched newspapers.com and got the, you know, the archive that way because, yeah. I mean, from like 1885. So it's really, as far as records access, I would definitely have a lot. This one definitely has a lot of scandal in the backstory. It has a lot of history that's very relevant to Kansas City. And then, of course, there are the ghostly visits to his church here in Kansas City, which is now called St. Mary's. It used to be called St. Luke's, but it's called St. Mary's now. And it's like a whole neighborhood has grown up around it. It's just such it's so different to see it now versus the pictures and the drawings sure. of when it was built, but everything else feels like I'd be teasing things out. This one almost seems like it writes itself. <laughs> just oh, yeah. reporting on it. If I want to do my first Missouri story, I know where it is now. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really good. Um, <laughs> so what are the hauntings there? What, what are the, what is the paranormal that comes out of it? It seems like, I mean, it, I will say it's along the lines of the vague, doors shutting, feeling mm -hmm. like someone's in the room when they're not, um, things like that, which I kind of feel like old churches just kind of have built into them by uh -huh. by virtue of being older buildings. Right. But there's not from what I've seen yet. Again, I just did cursory searches on these to try to get ideas. From what I've seen, there's not a lot of very specific things. That's definitely one that I would definitely tease the mysteries the most. How it connects to what is haunted about it, I think, is really where your ultimate decision is. 
the juxtaposition of what it might be now versus what it was when it was in this position where these actions were taking place, right? That the juxtaposition might be something that you really could hone in on. The fact that here now is something more, we won't call it beautiful or more idyllic or anything, but but this juxtaposition of what's there now and there's echoes of the horrors or the tragedy that happened there. And why is it? Why did that stay? Now, with something like this, one of the great things about telling these stories is that you're not just going to look fact-based, okay? You want the facts. You want to present the facts to a certain extent, but you're also talking about something that was local lore at one point. This was gossip at one point in town. And so this whole other side thing has developed that had nothing to do with the facts in the community accepted as being lore. And so you can play with that. This is why I think these things are fascinating the most. One of the research elements is, is as you look historically, even you have event occurs that people say is a haunting, but you know, now a hundred years later, or it sounds like about 140 years later, it has evolved what the story was. And then you have fact newspaper, and then you have the game of telephone ending in 2022 and how different these two things are. And you can play with that as well. So, so don't be afraid to look into if, if let's say you have your newspaper documents, you have your newspaper.com, there's archives, but you might also have, I, I don't know, the haunted America book series where there's, you know, just straight up, you know, this is according to local legend, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this man did this and this, and those two might be totally incongruent the newspaper accounts and the reality. And you can play off of that when you're telling a story, you know, you can do that. And it is more entertainment based. Now, I personally, that's why I was saying, I tell my stories in two chunks. I like to say, what is the most commonly accepted? What is it? If you take a ghost tour, people are saying people might really play up the murder. You're saying you don't even think it's a murder at all. Right. But, but maybe when I'm telling the story, I really play up all of that. And then I circle back and try and fill in the holes or maybe say, well, actually this might be more <laughs> true. You know, I, I joke, I joke. If I ever say something, if I ever say the word, according to local lore, it means I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say in, in crime lines, anything I can't really verify with multiple sources or it's only said in one interview, I will say, well, according to NBC News. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's kind of, that's I guess what I'm saying is it's almost like you're you're trying to find the most commonly accepted hearsay, mm-hmm. right? So we do a lot of stuff. What, what my sister is a researcher, is an archivist, is, is someone who really, you know, understands documentary evidence and um, primary sources and tertiary source, all that smart people stuff, right? The, she um, She really enjoys looking at a story so... You know, let's say it came out in 1915 and person passes away. Something awful happens in 1915. And then it gets reported in the newspaper that this thing happens. But then in 1930, all of a sudden, a oral history comes out somewhere and it's kind of altered a little bit. And then in 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, book publishing becomes more popular. So all of a sudden, it's now that local folklore is in some random little regional book that we find. And it's altered a little bit. And then we get to, you know, the 80s and then now there's haunted tourism around and now it's altered for that format. And then TV comes out and then YouTube comes out and then podcasts come out and it's changed for every single medium along the way. So you can kind of look at these two things as not necessarily evidentiary all the way. You can look at what has the common hearsay. It's the best way to put it, right? What's the, you know, what's the accepted hearsay of the story? What is, what is that final conglomeration of this game of telephone over the last hundred mm-hmm. years 
and uh, and kind of present that with the facts mixed in and then follow back with that kind of mystery that way. I think this may end up being one of the hardest writing things because it's in between narrative nonfiction and fiction. It's right. kind of in between where you're you're straddling the line and you're allowing in legend while you're still talking about something that may or may not have really happened. And right. it kind of sounds like the best of both worlds in some ways because you get to kind of play with in that space and say, well, this is what happened, but then build it out into scenes and right. and be a little bit more creative with it and get to say, well, you know, this one person said this thing and maybe it's true. So I can kind of include that in it. But on the other hand, I sometimes my brain is like, well, that but I don't know if it happened. How many sources do I have saying that this yeah. happened? Where Where's my court documents? I need my court documents. So I'm hoping that I don't get a little too, I don't know, legalistic about um, making sure everything is. That one might be too. So actual. if I were to, from what you're explaining to me about that story, that's one that probably now, you know, we put out an episode every two weeks and the reality is, is we don't do necessarily an episode from research from start to finish in that two week time. Everything's kind of been simmering somewhere. Right. And this is one that probably we wouldn't, if, if you just told me this and we decided we're going to do it soon, I bet it would probably have like a three month simmer time of, you know, we might go read about it and pull up some newspaper just to like see the scope of the land. And then we would go and we would see if there's any books and just the kind of random haunted library or blogs or YouTube videos and kind of look for where are the, where are the fantastic elements here and see what they do. And, and we might let that kind of play out. I always say like, we have to wait for Amazon to deliver a lot of our sources because they're silly little ghost books that, you know, might just be regional. Um, a local author has just compiling. And those are the opposite of what you're talking about with court documents. And we need those things in order to tell the story the way it is. I couldn't necessarily tell a ghost story from the actual newspaper account. So that one's probably, I, I, it sounds awesome, but that might be a little daunting. <laughs> might be uh, a little to, ambitious to do it in like two weeks, which yeah, is the current uh, timeline. You know, I know. And I, you know, we're obsessed with rabbit. We are, I, I actually don't like writing. Uh, my sister and I, that's like our weak point here. We are like, like those rabbit holes that you can go down. That is what, that's what fuels our podcast is those rabbit holes of, oh, you can find more and like what, what weird stuff's here. And what could, <laughs> like, that's, that's where we get really fascinated. So some people think podcasting takes more time than it does, but I think what people need to realize is that the thing that takes the most amount of time is the research by right. far. So if I have a 45 minute episode, I spent hours and hours researching it for the most part. Sometimes I'll have a an episode where there's limited sources and that's almost easier for me. Yeah. Although it makes it hard. I mean, it's a little bit harder because then I'm like, how do I make this unique from these couple of sources? But one of the things is if you were listening to a podcast that doesn't do any research, then it probably didn't take them very long to put it together. But in a case, in cases where we were doing tons and tons of research with my show and your show, it takes a lot of time. And oh, yeah. I spend a lot of time down rabbit holes that make one sentence in my podcast. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh. <And> yes. <laughs> it's not the most efficient way to research, but it, I think it makes things, I, it just gives me the context that I need to convey what I need to say about whatever I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the Warnell house would be not that heavy, that research heavy, except 
for the Civil War and for what the House really did as a as a field hospital, which wouldn't be too hard because they do tours on the regular about it. And I could just go mm -hmm. ask them. Do they do ghost tours? You said? Yes, mm -hmm. they, do. they do ghost tours there. And then at the Alexander Majors house, which is the same people run both of them. And the Alexander Man Majors house is, I don't know, a mile and a half away from the Warnell house. And so I may be doing one of their historical ghost tours, but they're not doing them till closer to Halloween yeah. at the Majors house. So I didn't want to do it because I don't have, there, I, I wouldn't be able to go to it until sure. long after I plan on having this done. <laughs> I, I mean, I would totally, if you have the opportunity to go and hear how the folks on the property are actually telling the story or talking about those apparitions and all, and, and including that, because I think aside from just getting the feel of the place, you'll be able to write a little more colorful picture. You know, that, that's what we were talking about. That's the accepted hearsay. Now they're the, they're the officials on, on what really it, that is. And then you adding research that's beyond that. I mean, Look, I, I love what I do, but at the end of the day, when I go to some of these places, uh, I went to one uh, last weekend, one of these, and it's a family owns this property where this famous haunting was, and it's really hillbilly. And I don't mean that negative. I, I live in Tennessee. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm a little bit hillbilly. I'm not trying to, you know, offend anyone here. Um, you know, it's very, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of out there and they don't really have clientele that's really checking research or anything. And I go out there and, and their tour guides and all aren't quite, um, they're, they're up on the story, but a lot of the context and things were lacking. And so, right. you know, um, they don't have some of the things that you can bring as someone who really has an extensive history now of doing research. Okay. I think I have a pretty good idea <laughs> to get started. <laughs> you have given me really good advice. I feel like I have a much better understanding of how, how to go about this. I'll probably be re-listening to this as I'm structuring things. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was good. I wish I could have had someone to teach me how to do this when I first started podcasting true crime. You have someone just sit down and tell me how to do it. But definitely, I mean, I am leaning towards the church one just because I like the research aspect. Um, but I, you know, I definitely want to make sure I can do it justice. And if I don't do that, I think I would probably do the Warnell house and not the hotel. I feel like now any of them I pick, I feel like I know how to approach it because uh -huh. you were very insightful in helping with that. Well, don't be afraid of cliches. I'll give you okay. that. I told you dad jokes are okay. <laughs> All right. Everybody, it's it's entertainment. You know, the whole thing is, you know, you're going to have, like I said, according to local lore. Don't be too afraid of it. You know, it's all, there's a reason that that stuff works. There's your cherry on top, right? <laughs> and just lean into the fantastic. Uh, absolutely. Lean into the part of your brain you don't normally get to use, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> the part that I push aside constantly. Totally. Okay, perfect. So thank you so much for this advice. And I am now going to um, log off and go start researching this. So thank you so much for your help. You're welcome. Good luck. In 1865, the Missouri Pacific Railroad reached Kansas City, then a town covering less than one square mile directly to the south of the Missouri River. Two years later, the railroad built a bridge over the river, making Kansas City the predominant city in the region. Once just a stopover on the way out west along the Santa Fe, 
Oregon, and California trails, Kansas City became a destination and the population and land area exploded. It was to this quickly growing city that Father Henry Jardine appeared in 1879, being assigned to St. Luke's Episcopal Church. And he stepped off the train in the spirit of Reformation. One of the first things Father Jardine did was change the name of the church, then located at 8th and Walnut. He changed it from St. Luke's to St. Mary's. Not many opposed, as the church had been offered a generous piece of land to build a new church building. Granted, they changed their patronage to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But the move to the patronage of Mary, Mother of God, was just one piece of a larger plan of Father Jardine's. He hoped to bring the congregation closer to the rituals and traditions of Catholicism, which had been slowly, very slowly, fading from the Anglican Church since the English Reformation in the 16th century. Father Jardine led by example, wearing a long black cassock wherever he went and performing high church rituals and holding confession. Father Jardine was not alone in his beliefs and was part of a larger Anglo-Catholic movement, a movement in direct conflict with the anti-Catholic sentiment that followed the mass immigration from some of the most Catholic countries in the world, like Ireland, Italy, and Poland. But Father Jardine's introduction of Anglo-Catholic traditions were hardly the only impact he had. Seeing the need for education in this frontier city, Father Jardine helped expand the church's school. Seeing the poverty that existed west of Kansas City in the historic West Bottoms, Father Jardine and his church reached out to provide food. Most of all, in 1882, Father Jardine called together businessmen to rally for the funding to start a hospital. This led to the establishment of All Saints Hospital, one of the first hospitals in the Kansas City area. Charity care was their mission. In spite of the good works Father Jardine encouraged in the community, some families left St. Mary's as the rituals and traditions began looking more like a Catholic church. Most stayed, but not all who stayed were supporters of Father Jardine. And one of these congregants, John C. Shea, had a platform few others had. Shea was the editor of the Kansas City Times, Kansas City's morning newspaper. When Father Jardine refused to resign his position in the aftermath of families leaving the church, Shea took to his paper to expose Father Jardine. You see, Father Jardine had a past that Shea and others had uncovered. The article ran on June 10, 1885, and was given the tabloid headline, Jailbird Jardine. When Father Jardine was 16 years old, he was arrested for robbery. Jardine had been living with his sister and her husband in Rochester, New York, after the death of his parents, and he helped a friend steal from his brother-in-law's factory. After serving his two-year sentence for what Father Jardine called a youthful indiscretion, 
He attended Trinity College in Connecticut, learned about Anglo-Catholicism, and decided to become a priest. Rather than turn the congregation away from Father Jardine, the parishioners were quick to forgive as Father Jardine acknowledged his past, the debt he paid through his prison sentence, and the wonderful forgiveness of God Almighty. So John Shea decided to try again. Less than a week after the Jailbird article, he published a second article titled Jardine's Jollities, and it was based on a pamphlet that had been created and handed out to members of the church. The pamphlet, called Truth versus Jardine, and the article both leveled a number of accusations. This included financial mismanagement and drug use. But the most serious of all, it accused Father Jardine of using the private confessional that he introduced to act inappropriately towards female parishioners. In one instance, the article claimed Father Jardine had been caught spanking a young woman with a slipper as her penance. The newspaper cleverly referred to the sacristy as the spankristy. As was common at the time, other newspaper editors scoured regional news for salacious stories, and the tale of the spankristy soon left the realm of local gossip and hit the nationwide press. Father Jardine couldn't simply ignore these accusations of impropriety. His reputation and good character were at stake. He made a public denial and then took things a step farther. He sued John Shea and the Kansas City Times for libel. After presenting his case in court, John Shea's defense opened with a witness, a 13-year-old girl who had attended St. Mary's School. The incident she testified to occurred four years before when she was just nine, and the newspapers at the time said her account was unfit for publication. The story of Father Jardine spanking a female parishioner had turned into Father Jardine spanking a partially dressed child. Unable to prove the accusation was false, Father Jardine lost his case. This loss came at a high price. The accusations were now public record, and the church couldn't ignore it. They convened an ecclesiastical court in September 1885 to investigate if Father Jardine had acted inappropriately. A month later, they rendered their verdict. They found 44-year-old Father Henry Jardine guilty of improper conduct with a girl, improper conduct with adult female congregants, and habitual drug use. The drug was chloroform, which Father Jardine admitted to using, but always said he used it to control a nerve condition that had caused twitching in his face. After the court reached its verdict, it was recommended that Father Jardine be removed from the priesthood. Father Jardine appealed for retrial, which the bishop denied. 
And that is what had Father Henry Jardine traveling across the state to St. Louis in January of 1886. He took refuge with his friend, Father George Betts, the rector of Trinity Church. Father Betts had found an attorney for Father Jardine to meet with in the hopes of stopping his removal from the priesthood. And time was running out. His conviction in the ecclesiastical court would be announced soon in Kansas City if he couldn't find a way to stop it. On the night of Saturday, January 9th, with one day before his removal, Father Jardine met with his attorney. Father Betts stayed by his side as the attorney told them that the bishop had refused to reconsider and there was nothing more that could be done. Father Jardine held his face in his hands and then said his real character was unchanged. He was innocent. They left him around 1.30 in the morning to sleep. Father Jardine laid back on the two pews pushed together as a makeshift bed, and then he took out his bottle of chloroform and a rag. He pulled the sheets up and went to sleep. The next morning, Father Betts entered the vestry to get ready for Sunday services. Father Jardine had slept in, missing breakfast, so his friend tried to wake him. Instead, he found Father Jardine dead with a handkerchief over his face. Attempts to revive Father Jardine failed, and he was pronounced dead in St. Louis as the announcement of his removal from the priesthood was reverberating in Kansas City. Father Jardine had died of a chloroform overdose, but the question was, was it intentional? Father Betts refused to believe it was. He had been with his friend in his final moments. And though upset about what was happening, Father Jardine had courage and was ready to move on with his life. Father Betts believed it was an accident and preached this at Father Jardine's funeral held in Kansas City days later. He derided those who had made the false accusations against Father Jardine and proclaimed his late friend's innocence from the pulpit. But even Father Jardine's death did not stop the Kansas City Times from reporting on the accusations and about a peculiar thing discovered in his death. When preparing Father Jardine's body for burial, they found a metal chain welded around his waist, something he carried for penance. This was more evidence of his guilt for some, because why would an innocent priest need to carry around the weight of his sins? After the funeral, Father Jardine's remains were stored in a vault at Union Cemetery as there was controversy about where he would be buried. The medical examiner in St. Louis believed this may have been an accidental overdose, yet the bishop ruled it a suicide. Priests of St. Mary's were usually buried on consecrated land at Forest Hill Cemetery, but if Father Jardine had taken his own life, he could not be. So instead, he was buried at Elmwood Cemetery, where he would remain for 35 years. 
It was in 1921 that the last surviving supporters of Father Jardines lobbied the church to reconsider. They had a reinvestigation done, and it was ruled that the amount of chloroform used was not excessive enough to assume Father Jardine would have thought it would kill him. The official church finding of suicide was overturned, and Father Jardine was reinterred at Forest Hill alongside the other rectors of St. Mary's. But eternal rest would not be so easy for Father Jardine if the stories of the parishioners are to be believed. According to them, Father Jardine still walked the floor of St. Mary's. Prior to his death, Father Jardine had broken ground on the land donated to the church for a new building at 13th and Holmes. He did not live to see it completed, yet in death, it seemed he had found his way there. For years, parishioners would walk through the church with the feeling of being watched. Some would smell incense when none was burning, much like what Father Jardine used in his services at St. Mary's. Some say they would see a figure move by a window as they looked from the parking lot, but when they entered the church, no one would be there. But most of the activity was near the church's altar, a place dedicated to Father Jardine and where his supporters initially wanted him interred. For some people, paranormal happenings cause distress. The observers feel the need to push the spirit out or aid them in making their journey to the other side. But for the congregants of St. Mary's, they welcomed Father Jardine. The church was his passion, and he remained not to haunt, but to protect. So strong was this view that the church had Father Jardine's grave at Forest Hill excavated in the year 2000. They brought his bones and his chain back to St. Mary's and entombed them beneath the altar, as his original supporters had intended. And since then, Father Jardine's presence has been even more pronounced. The church's alarm service has reported their system detecting doors opening in the middle of the night. A repairman fixing the organ, which is located near the altar, brought his dog along and the dog chased something that the repairman could not see. Shuffling footsteps have been heard and a strong presence is felt on the second floor of the church almost always within view of the altar, and the presence remains a protective spirit. The protective spirit, whether temporal or ethereal, really is Father Jardine's true legacy in Kansas City. As the Kansas City Times faded into the Kansas City Star, All Saints Hospital has exploded into the St. Luke's Health System, remaining Kansas City's only locally owned, not-for-profit hospital with a mission of charity care and medical education. While his detractors faded into history, Father Henry Jardine's imprint on Kansas Cityans 
remains.